It's February. It's raining in Cambridge, and I'm I'm guessing uh, snowing and dark and miserable in Stockholm. Yes, <laughs> yes. That's exactly what I was gonna say. But I, as a Swede, you hate these people who move further south and then they call home like, oh, what's your weather like? Here it's 14 <laughs> degrees and sunny, and I heard it's still slushy and and miserable in Stockholm. Oh, poor you guys. Bye bye. <laughs> Any sorry. Swede that's on vacation, I delete or hide from my social media temporarily because the bragging that comes just on temperature alone is irritating. Okay, that's going to make season two of the arbitration very arbitration session very hard. <laughs> no, <laughs> sure. Not that not that Cambridge is Marbella, but it's still uh, significantly better typically than Sweden. Uh, um, well, how was your New Year's? Uh, well, it's February at this point, so I, I barely uh, remember. Actually, it was good. Uh, I was out in a uh, in an island in the archipelago outside of Gothenburg. <laughs> I'm noticing a trend every time I ask you what you've been doing. It's like more and more isolation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I need that in order to to say that I'm writing, and although I'm not really, but you are not. You're as always doing the opposite. Correct. I was in Los Angeles with family, but now I'm back um, and better than ever in Sweden and just working and teaching. I'm actually teaching next week at uh, Uppsala University and Stockholm University. I'm teaching every day next week. Oh, really? Yeah. So you're you're taking my spot, taking my job now that I'm away. Well, Joel's away. The Bryans will play. Can we say that? (laughs) Um, Yeah. So we're teaching in the investment arbitration uh, masters at Uppsala and then just some like Erasmus students on oral advocacy and the comparison between Swedish law and US law. That's great. I'm looking forward to hearing your notes on the Uppsala seminars in, in particular because I wrote them and it would be interesting to hear uh, how they work when in someone has to teach them. Yeah, exactly. When an actual practitioner is, is teaching. I'll take vivid notes, Joel, to make sure you know. Meanwhile, on the... Uh, on the uh, British islands, I'm going to conferences all of the time uh, because I'm in Cambridge and close to London and both of those places have um, almost every day there's something interesting, either in public international law or in international arbitration. So I'm, I'm not really writing as much as I thought. For, for tomorrow, for example, I'm going to the EFILA. Oh, yeah. What are they talking you, about? I barely know, actually. Okay. Uh, but you're going yeah. and shaking hands. Yeah, exactly. You got it. <laughs> well, why don't you bring us in on what we're going to talk about this season or this this episode and this season? Yeah, they sort of overlap a little bit because this season will have uh, uh, somewhat of a focus on different jurisdictions and places of arbitration. We'll go around the world and, and talk to people. And part of doing that, uh, or as part of doing that, this episode, the first episode, I'm speaking to Lucas Mistelis. Who's, who's in London, which is the reason we, we managed to, to get him to spend half an hour talking to, to us. He's done a lot of research on, on places of arbitration and uh, how they compete with each other. He runs this, um, he's a professor at, at Queen Mary, where they have a very good master's program in international arbitration. And one of the research outputs they have, I guess you've, you've run into this because it's, it's a big thing in the arbitration world. This is a relatively regular survey that they do together with White and Case. Right. 
where they ask users uh, a bunch of questions uh, about arbitration procedure and then they compile and analyze those data into into regular reports one of the things they they have as sort of a regular subject is is place of arbitration and what to go what goes into our contract drafters minds when they consider applicable law and, and applicable procedural law as well lex arbitri fancy yeah so i'm i'm speaking to him first and asking him a few questions cuz he's in a pretty good position with the with this research background to what a to great set up what a great speaker to have for our inaugural episode for season two pretty stoked yeah. about it yeah yeah me too he, he's a, he's an interesting guy uh, who's a, a professor with a significant track of scholarship but who's also very much involved in, in practice partly because of this london masters kind of like patricia that we talked to during the season right. one you know w- w- once you've been in that game for 10 15 years you have a pretty good group of uh, alumni out there that you still can interact with if you're smart. And maybe you'll get into this, but I think when people talk about, especially when you're talking about contract drafters and what they need to have in mind when you're including an arbitration clause and a seat of arbitration in that clause, is a lot of disputes lawyers don't get a chance to have any influence on the contract drafting. You know, it's included at the last minute and you may just have someone from the M&A department send down something to the disputes department and ask them to review an arbitration clause to make sure that it's valid, but they don't necessarily want input or ask for the imp- the necessary implications or don't even know the questions to ask. Yeah, um, I mean, I guess that is even a good case. Typically, you just get a dispute and the clause is already there and you've had no input. Exactly. So to think about what... Um, why this is relevant for a disputes lawyer when if more often than not a disputes lawyer is only getting an already drafted and invoked arbitration clause i think it's not only to give your client advice if you're having like one of those initial meetings on a dispute um, but sometimes the seat is not included and also if you're talking about enforcement and challenging you uh, well challenging not so much but enforcement of an award um, could be interesting to discuss the place of arbitration yeah, this will probably come back once and twice and probably more than that during during this season as we move along around the world. And so then after Lucas, um, we will set up the place of arbitration series. What will we be asking people and where are we planning on going and uh, why, basically? And for happy fun time. As advertised, I've been waiting for this. <laughs> <laughs> what is arbitration friendly or pro-arbitration? Why are these phrases such a go-to uh, things and natural reflexes for arbitration lawyers to use in, in different contexts? And uh, the, the, it's no secret that I'm a little bit provoked by these phrases. I will, And I, I cannot will... wait to point, poke the bear on this one because <laughs> I will as expected, take the counter argument to whatever you have to say. So that's going to be exciting. Yeah, but before that civil war at the arbitration station, let's uh, be a bit serious and talk to uh, Professor Lucas Mistilis. So maybe to to start off, because I think you've written about it, the, the competition among seats or places of arbitration is there such a competition do you think uh certainly <laughs> i i think 
one can observe since perhaps 2002-2003 the first attempts of particular seats to market themselves and to try to appear to be uh, particularly sort of ideal places to arbitrate. Um, obviously, the the first major marketing exercise was done by Singapore, um, where the Singapore Economic Development Board worked very much with the Singapore International Arbitration Centre to promote them. But there were similar attempts, obviously, over the years um, in various jurisdictions. Um, the Law Society in England and Wales um, during a major international law conference, not an arbitration conference, did uh, try to market um, London and English law as the best um, place and the best law to use for disputes. Um, there was a bit of um, critique, I wouldn't say backlash, because there was no evidence that they had any impact on the numbers. And then the German Federal Ministry of Justice produced a document, Choose Germany, and choose German law clauses, um, interesting enough, drafted in English, <laughs> and and various other places, uh, Malaysia, Hong Kong, um, even Paris, started sort of to react to this movement with the uh, Paris, uh, the place of arbitration, this organization that has been created, um, uh, and similar initiatives for Hong Kong Arbitration Week, um, New York International Arbitration Center, um, and, and, and the line is very long. And it, who are they, these agents then typically within the places of arbitration? It seems like it depends a lot on the jurisdiction. For example, the extent to which the government is involved and, and the extent to which it's primarily a, a bottom-up arbitration community initiative. Um, there seems to be quite a bit of a difference of approach. Uh, I think in Asia, um, but also perhaps parts of Africa, um, a lot of this movement was uh, government-funded and government-supported or public sector-funded and public sector-supported. That's certainly the case in Singapore, perhaps in Mauritius. Um, uh, and um, in other places, it was much more private initiatives uh, with a sort of an avalanche of uh, various stakeholders, particularly local practitioners, um, getting together. The UK idea, or perhaps the English idea, was this International Centre for um, Dispute Resolution, which was um, effectively a hearing centre. Uh, it was an entirely private initiative, and it brought together various institutions, from the Charter Institute, the LCIA, the City Disputes Panel, um, the um, CEDAR, etc., the same seems to be the case in, in, in Paris and in New York. It was private sector initiated, uh, but the local arbitration community, the various stakeholders, institutions, arbitrators, arbitration law firms, appreciating the value. And, uh, of course, ICDR did not do much more than that. Um, perhaps IDRC, I should say, doesn't... Disputation Center is the correct name, not to confuse them with AAA. Um, IDRC, it was created, it started running, um, having some profit, and they just kept it a low profile since. The Singapore reaction, of course, to that is not just the marketing, but also Maxwell Chambers, um, which has expanded, and it had sort of government support. What is Maxwell Chambers for the non-initiated listener? The Maxwell Chambers is actually a beautiful building in the center of Singapore where arbitration um, institutions operate hearings and uh, lawyers, law firms and 
chambers of barristers that want to have a presence, they can hire uh, space either permanently or um, it's a sort of sophisticated serviced offices for arbitra- arbitrators and arbitration practitioners. Uh, and is a model which seems to be very, very popular. The hearing rooms are perhaps the best that one can see around. Um, if one compares them with the US or, or the UK, perhaps are not really. <laughs> um, um, it's not much to compare. I mean, it's much more high-tech and much more sophisticated. And that brings up an interesting thing that I've um, been... Typically, I emphasize to our students that you have to always keep in mind that the place of arbitration is a legal construct and the hearing facilities and the place of the hearing is not necessarily the same as the legal place of arbitration. And I think you touched upon this in things you've written as well, that still yeah. those aren't necessarily decoupled when, when places or seats are, are marketing themselves. What I have written is that um, popular arbitral seats, popular arbitration venues, they have to have a basic minimum requirements. And the basic minimum requirements are perhaps not surprising. They have to be a signatory to the New York Convention, so that in case there's a reciprocity reservation to the New York Convention, the award can be easily enforced. Um, that perhaps is less critical these days, but still um, it's an issue. They have to have a fairly modern arbitration law. Um, sort of the vanilla version of that, of course, is the model law, but there is vanilla plus. So, um, and and. And interestingly enough, the two, the three most popular venues, which are England, London, particularly Paris, and Switzerland, none of them are model law jurisdictions. So that's true, and the same applies to the U.S. and to Sweden. Exactly. And to, yeah. So if one looks, for example, at the real number of cases, it seems that the majority of cases go to non-model law venues, because the plain vanilla flavor is not enough. And then comes the third. Um, perhaps requirement is what is the attitude of local courts and, and how, how likely it is for local courts to first enforce an arbitration agreement and second to assist the parties in the process. For example, England, which appeared to have this hands hand, on abroad, that there was a residual jurisdiction of English courts if the arbitration was taking place in England and Wales, and they still had jurisdiction over arbitral matters, even if the, if the seat was outside London and Wales, it seemed to have served very well for many years. And we see, for example, that in the last revision of the French law, uh, the, the French courts have now, um, pro- the French law has now provided for French courts to provide support where there's a, a risk of denial of justice, if there's a need for the local courts to act. Um, and the Swiss law was very much similar. A lot was passed to the jurisdiction, uh, a lot of the jurisdiction was within the tribunals, but as and when the tribunal wanted or the parties wanted, then the Swiss courts would be activated. So we need sort of New York Convention, a decent law, not perhaps the best law, um, and that's not a criticism about any of the laws I have mentioned, um, and, and a very supporting judiciary, which is very much sort of deferential to the arbitral process, but supporting where it's necessary. Um, and therefore, if you have that minimum, even if you change your law to add a bit of something more, sort of to have third-party funding or to have a bit more on consolidation, it takes perhaps generations to change the perception. So you need the basic legal requirements, but you you need all the infrastructure um, for the arbitration to run. Um, an example, um, court reporters are very widely used in, in, in arbitration. 
most of the court reporters in Europe are based in, in London. Um, and they have to travel out of London to where, they arbit- uh, where they, there's an arbitration. In Asia, most of them are based in Hong Kong or Australia, and they have to travel out of there where the hearing is. So whenever I had hearings, for example, in Switzerland, the court reporters will fly out of London or, or in Istanbul or other places. Um, but the seat uh, is is important because the arbitrators is important for the arbitrators to feel confident in the venue, and of course is is important for the lawyers to feel confident in the venue, and it has to be a venue which is um, accessible in all possible meanings of the of the word. So there are no restrictions about the right of lawyers to practice in the jurisdiction if they practice in arbitration. Um, that's a very big no-no, for example. Um, and that that you will find translators, that you will find hearing venues, um, that you find good hotels. Um, but all these, fly, these good flights. latter non-legal aspects, if you will, with respect to translators and flights and hotels and, and so on, are not necessarily uh, similar to the legal uh, minimum requirements that you Absolutely. just mentioned. So given that, how... How common or how frequent, to the extent that you know, is it that these two are in fact decoupled in arbitrations, that you have the place of arbitration in one place and the hearings or, or all the practical matters are dealt with in another place? I, I have recently been involved in, in a case of a major institution where the institution has set um, the, uh, the seat. The seat was in Switzerland. Uh, the problem, however, in that particular case is that um, I was the only European arbitrator, and the other two arbitrators were not European, and they had certain restrictions as to how easily they can get a visa. And the same, more importantly, applied to the parties, which were from um, jurisdictions where they were even particular sanctions and restrictions to travel. So, for example, setting the seat in, 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 in Zurich, it was great because there were flights, but for, for the two months period where we had to have the, the first hearing, the first procedural hearing, none of the involved parties apart from me could get a visa to travel to Switzerland in two months. So you ended up We ended up in, in Istanbul. Um, uh, so in this case, uh, obviously it was, it was need that was creating that. But you see very often this decoupling, as you called it, um, in cases where you have sophisticated, sophisticated counsel. So if you have a sophisticated counsel, for example, in investment arbitration, more often than in commercial cases, um, they can have the hearing wherever is convenient um, and not necessarily where, uh, not in Washington, D.C. I, I do not have any statistics, but I would assume that a very good number of exit cases does not take place in Washington, D.C. And generally, I think um, um, sophisticated lawyers are quite relaxed. Um, there are certain jurisdictions where the seat does not allow the parties to do whatever they want. For example, Egypt is one of those. In Egypt is also, for example, critical, not only that the arbitration, if, if, if the arbitration agreement um, refers to Egypt, it's not, imp- not only important that the hearing is in, in Egypt, the award has to be physically signed in Egypt. So, which is a bit bizarre, but it could be that three or six months, or perhaps even longer, that after the final procedure act in the arbitration, the arbitrators will have to fly to Cairo at a certain cost just to sign the award. Um, that, of course, does not make sense, um, practically, um, if you have a genuine international case. But that's what the law is. So, the sophisticated counsel perhaps would avoid that sort of um, problem, 
by having, for example, the hearing where it's convenient, but then have that procedure locked there, or not ever agreeing to a seat which has certain restrictions of that type. That type of restriction sounds like it's not what is popularly called uh, arbitration-friendly or pro-arbitration. It's a good good example of that type of uh, non-arbitration-friendly features of a, of a legal seat, right? Uh, yes, I, I think everything which restricts the ability of the parties to contract out of what the default provision of the law is, I would call it largely um, arbitration unfriendly. Um, Do you have a, a, a quick go-to definition of arbitration friendly? The other side of the coin, which you also use. I'm asking because we talked about it on the podcast and we're thinking of devoting quite some time at just... Uh, for this concept and talk about it more, more critically because it's, it's used very often. Yeah, I, I think the arbitration of friendliness is, cannot be, uh, um, I think it's, it's cultural predominantly and, and, and it's legal culture and, and how it's manifested in domestic laws. I would think arbitration of friendliness means that um, the courts, the local courts exercise their jurisdiction with um, uh, uh, discretion and hesitation <laughs> um, that however um, th- they would be uh, exercising jurisdiction where the parties clearly want the court to do something and whether they can assist in preventing injustice or sort of um, uh, some imbalance in the arbitration process um, and and I think any other intervention which is unnecessary or gratuitous, what I would call it, is perhaps not 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 friendly. Um, looking at jurisdictions, I think there are hardly any jurisdictions without skeletons in their cupboards. I mean, you could find surprising or unsatisfactory cases in France. You will find unsatisfactory cases in Switzerland. You'll find unsatisfactory cases in the UK, in 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 in, in Hong Kong, in in Singapore, in, in New York. Um, I think we should make this a standard question when we when we call people from different places of arbitration and ask them what, what are the the skeletons in your closet in your jurisdiction. Yes, for example, for some people, for example, in in, in France, the skeleton in the cupboard of the of the French law is Technimont, or perhaps even the aftermath of the Tapi affair case, sort of which, where because the tribunal because the national courts could not do anything in relation to the arbitration award or the arbitration process, they have attacked the. Um, the arbitrators with criminal proceedings. Or in Technimon, where, for example, the court very clearly disagreed with the determination done within the arbitration as to the independence and impartiality of, of, of one arbitrator, Swedish, um, uh, it, it was in the end a very heavy handed solution, which was the immediate reaction was to throw out the award. Um, and of course, um, uh, uh, that has been sort of gone back and forth, and that matter has eventually been agra- addressed. And, and in the UK, for example, some people will call that a skeleton could be cases like Lesotho Highlands because they have gone for a very long period in the court. But in the end of the day, one could argue that it's better to have gone for longer because the outcome was the right. Or there's the odd um, um, case where the English courts were a bit more um, protective of, um, the, of the interpretation of the English law where they thought that was inappropriate. Um, and again, a lot of these English cases are commodities cases or shipping cases where some of the potatoes are not lawyers. So the, the court interferes to make sure that the outcome is right. Um, but you, so see, you see it's in, in almost each and every jurisdiction, exactly. as you say. And typically also when these 
court cases, as is typically the case, come out. You see sort of a knee-jerk reaction as well in the arbitration community to try and, and storm out and explain to the rest of the arbitration world why this is in fact not as big a problem or why it needs to be addressed or why it will be addressed in the future. And, and you see, for example, that even the language that a, a national court will employ in some circumstances is effectively educating the arbitration community that, that I mean, yes, we believe in party autonomy, but there's limits to what you can do, and that's perhaps just over the limit. Huh? Um, every now and then, I think, to be reminded of that is, is not, not, a bad, not a bad idea. And again, in Switzerland, a lot of the cases that go to court and awards being annulled are... Um, sports awards, which again is a different sort of uh, expedited process with very, very short proceedings and often some of the arbitrators um, um, are perhaps not well-versed in arbitration they're more sort of versed with sports law and and, and I think these are corrective mechanisms so I think the idea is not to lose um, sight, I think arbitration unfriendliness is for example um, intervening with the determination of jurisdiction before the tribunal has a, a, a look at that at all. So so the US, even with some not ideal decisions, is arbitration friendly because the courts very clearly say we have a second look, so you you decide. But we have, for example, cases in Pakistan, Hapkon, Wab, that says, oh, we have state involvement, there's an allocation of corruption, you cannot touch it. Um, um, so that's perhaps sort of interfering with the jurisdiction of the tribunal too early and without necessarily the will of the parts at that stage is not a, not a good indication. Um, um, the attitude towards enforcement of awards against domestic parties, um, if the arbitration has taken place outside the jurisdiction, is perhaps another indicator. Um, the willingness to, uh, to sort of to, to deploy the, the canons of public policy, of domestic public policy, where it may or may not be relevant, stricter, a stricter sense, so that's again all of these indicators of the friendliness. These latter aspects touch on uh, a very specific question I had for you, uh, because I don't know the answer myself, uh, having to do with the tension between domestic and, and international uh, cases, because I read, I think it's one, maybe the most recent survey, uh, that you mentioned that Tokyo is a relatively frequent answer to, to the question which which legal seat do parties prefer, but it is with the caveat that it is mostly Japanese respondents to the survey yes. that prefer their home turf, so to speak. Uh, is this bad form in, in international commercial arbitration to, to insist too much on your own home jurisdiction as the place yes. of arbitration? Is it, is it common, do you think? I, th- I think our surveys very clearly indicate, both in 2010 and 12, but also in 2015 to some extent, that uh, if council can push their home seat, they will push it. Um, but traditionally, and, and of course that's the indication for example in Japan, um, that would be the indication in Germany, but traditional um, exporting countries like Japan, um, Germany, and the US uh, are very much aware that they cannot do that. So so, so in, the, in the compromise of that they have to, to do, between applicable law and seat of arbitration, I think arbitration, the existence of arbitration is more important than the seat of arbitration, and perhaps applicable law is even more important than the seat. Um, and that's why we have seen slowly a move to to certain civil law um, legal systems being chosen as part of the choice of law, uh, still, of course, English law being the most popular neutral law, um, 
Um, and, and of course, a lot of these English cases, uh, a lot of the English arbitration cases, do not really involve any genuine English parties. Um, but but that 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 Japanese sort of response or the, or the similar Chinese response or the similar sort of um, German response indicates that that's something that um, general counsel desires but doesn't necessarily get. Mm-hmm. It's a first uh, first line in the negotiation, yeah, exactly. and then you expect to. So they're, they're, they're happy to give it up in favor of just keeping arbitration and just keeping a, a better applicable law than the alternative. Another thing, and slowly wrapping up, I think, which is another relatively specific question that I've been thinking a little bit about on the same lines, uh, is it's the relationship between these major international law firms that operate on sort of an international plane and the more local firms. Because, of course, the connection that the big firm has with the more local firm is also a significant aspect in determining the place of arbitration. Mm -hmm. Is there such a oversimplifying of course do you think is there such a such a network of this different kinds of law firms with with significant connections among themselves that that has an impact on which places of arbitration are being chosen yes it's perhaps difficult to empirically evidence that because as you say a lot of these sort of networks are informal networks um, but they are uh, and and I think of um, uh, for example, if you take venues which are popular but perhaps not in the top five, um, like um, Stockholm or Vienna, there's a, or, or perhaps even now um, parts of the Netherlands or, or, um, or Malaysia, uh, you will see that there is um, some sort of emerging network of law firms trying to um, work with local firms I think global firms can effectively arbitrate anywhere. Um, it, it, if, uh, in order to get the right type of case, um, which could involve a party from Costa Rica or a party from Chile, they do some strategic alliances at various stages of the process, um, often post-dispute, and then you have some sort of a negotiation uh, so that the procedure order number one, or the terms of reference, record a consensus which is perhaps... Um, what would be desirable to the lawyers. And and I think um, you will find that the more sophisticated the law firm and the more experienced the firm is, the more of these direct negotiations will happen with the lawyers and so that they can agree what is best for them rather than what is best for, for, the, for the tribunal. Um, and when it's used effectively, it is really very effective. Um, but, but the reality is that uh, sometimes parties get very um, sort of uh, agitated at the, at the existence of a dispute and they cannot find an agreement. For example, one of the reasons why London is popular um, um, is be- because so many parties from CIS like to arbitrate in London. They like to arbitrate in London because they have familiarity with English law, with English firms and English barristers. So you can have a Russian or a Ukrainian or a Kazakh firm um, working closely with an English barrister. Um, they do all the work and the barrister will take it forward. They know that in terms of enforcement, some of the accounts will be here. Um, so it's a one-stop. Um, and, and, and also some of the very high-profile um, disputes before English, the English High Court, uh, which were entirely between sort of CIS parties, indicated to them that that's perhaps a, a, a form which is appropriate and, and even has a bit of a, a market value. I mean, 
there, on the issue of competition, um, uh, one would have thought that competition made arbitration much more efficient and much cheaper. But the strange thing about arbitration is that arbitration is effectively a luxury brand. So no one is prepared to drop the prices, neither the um, law firms nor the arbitrators, uh, and perhaps not even the institutions. I think they, they try to make corrections, but, but sort of really corrections rather than major sort of revision of the, of the, of the price, uh, of the prices they offer. And that's, I think that's a very interesting uh, competition element when we come to, to, to close the, the, the cycle of competition among seats. And you get what you pay for. Absolutely, <laughs> yes, absolutely. All right, thank you so much, Lucas. I think it's time for lunch. Okay, good. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Excellent. Entering the second segment of episode one of season two, we will now be introducing to the listeners what we've been talking about all through season one, essentially why we think the seat of arbitration is such a fundamental discussion that arbitration practitioners need to have and how it can be extremely useful to have such a comparative discussion on this type of platform um, because the beauty of a podcast is that we can reach a lot of people around the world. So what our plan for this was to basically interview someone from each jurisdiction or not each no. jurisdiction. <laughs> From several jurisdictions. <laughs> All the 159 New York Convention jurisdictions. <laughs> exactly. And Antarctic arbitration in season five. Um, we will be asking people from several jurisdictions a series of questions, and I'm sure each interview will take its own um, crazy path through some sort of uncharted territory that we've never discussed so each one will not be a cookie cutter version but i think our questions will be somewhat similar isn't that right yeah i guess that's a plan so so that, that's what we've been telling the people we've scheduled interviews with so that they can prepare and then we might surprise them and ask more and different questions and see what where the conversation takes us exactly so we'll definitely talk about legislative framework you know the, the applicable legislation if there's any mandatory rules in the field um, and i think this goes into our happy fun topic uh quite well because a lot of these things are seen as arbitration friendly or not arbitration friendly um and then you have the arb go ahead uh, i was going to say i'm also interested in the softer issues such as the arbitration community in the jurisdiction to what extent is there a, a thriving arbitration community or is it on the uh, the other end so that the lack of arbitration community makes it harder to conduct and have international arbitrations within the jurisdiction because that's a pretty uh, crucial part i think of of a legal seat also are there lawyers in place who are proficient in doing set asides for example if, if the international award is challenged in courts and if so are the judges uh, ready or uh, competent not in the legal sense but in terms of their skills to hear such a set aside yeah no definitely and even if you're talking about the united states something that you would think is a very progressive nation well not really right now but you know what i mean um <laughs> they don't have that type of culture so you know they have if you're working as a disputes lawyer you're definitely going to get a blend of arbitration and litigation and you have a lot of domestic arbitration that really influences the international arbitration so i think even surface you may see countries as being extremely involved in arbitration 
could have a very backwards view on how it's implemented on a day-to-day basis as a practitioner. True, true. And this general t- tension between domestic and international arbitration, I think, is also a fruitful territory to explore for us. Definitely. And then, I mean, this is probably the last time we'll, I will say this, at least it was also mentioned by Lucas or in, in the discussions with Lucas, the legal place of arbitration and the place of hearings are not necessarily the same. Our listeners know this by now. So under most arbitration rules, you, you can have the hearings in one place and be legally seated in another. But keeping that in mind, I think it's also relevant to talk about uh, hearing facilities, translators, uh, hotels, flights, and so on and so forth. Stuff that are more logistical in nature, simply because it's pretty common, probably more common than the other way around, that you do have the hearings at the place of arbitration. Definitely. I would also be, and this is one of the, a lot of the questions, the line of questions I will be asking is court involvement in arbitration. Um, because you often read a lot of things about how courts become involved or how courts decide issues of arbitration. For example, if there's an agreement to arbitrate, how willing is a court to kind of forego any litigation between the parties and force the parties to go to arbitration? Or is it a bit more litigation leaning um i think only those type of questions can be answered by someone really working day to day in the specific jurisdiction so i'm going to be very interested to see what people say about that that's that's a good line of questioning i think especially in the few jurisdictions that i can think of on the top of my head i'm also very interested in to the extent we can get people to talk about this what what lucas called skeletons in the in the cupboard that I called, by the way, skeletons in the closet. What's the verdict closet. from the closet, really? Yeah. I, I mean, okay. I don't know why you would store skeletons in one place or the other, but... Yeah, you would have, have to closet. ask the esteemed professor, Lucas Mistelis. Okay. <laughs> Regardless of where <laughs> sorry, sorry, you prefer to, to store your skeletons, uh, there are skeletons in most arbitral jurisdictions. It would be interesting to hear the things that you do not typically hear when jurisdiction X is going abroad and, and advertising, what are the sort of embarrassing points that that uh, you do not want to advertise to the international arbitration community? Court decisions or other weaker things that have been uh, more or less embarrassing for the jurisdiction in question. Yes, and that will come up in kind of a context, I think, as far as like recent trends in that jurisdiction, um, any type of, not only as far as reforms to their legislation on arbitration, but also how courts are interpreting certain new things that are coming up in arbitration, um, I think is very interesting. Yeah, right. This sort of ties into another question that we haven't really addressed even between the two of us, and that is, who are the people that we're talking to? And it it seems that the answer to that question is uh, there's no particular uh, idea behind it. it. It would make perfect sense really to just go for the senior figure at the arbitration institution that is the biggest one in the city in question. Uh, but we will probably do that a few times, but part of this is also to get a a broader view. So we'll also talk to to more junior people and maybe even to a few people who are not necessarily based in in the jurisdiction, but have significant experience from there. So you will see both secretaries, generals of institutions, but also uh, junior practitioners and also academics, depending on who we think would make a good fit for, for a podcast format. Definitely. The more comparative, the better. I think would be our go-to philosophy. That's right. And also able to chit-chat for a while with, with two uh, confused nerds from, <laughs> from, from another part of the world. 
That just reminds me of our episode with Hannah Slank in the first season where it was like, disclaimer, we know nothing. Let's move on. Yeah, I think we've done that a few times at this point. (laughs) And to kind of also clarify something, because this is something I did not know myself when we were initially contemplating entering into this series of uh, seats of arbitration, is the fact that it will not dominate the entire episode. It will be the highlight of each episode, but that we will still be bringing the good old arbitration station, uh, substantive and also happy fun time topics to complement the seat of arbitration. So yeah, it will be point. the highlight, but not uh, the dominant factor. It's one segment. Exactly. Great. And uh, with that, I think we can open the beer. So arbitration friendly or pro arbitration uh, one more annoying than the other to me <laughs> <laughs> i can't wait for this <laughs> <laughs> no I, I, I won't oversell it uh, I, i'm afraid i'm going to be a little bit more nuanced than than this but start looking for this pro arbitration phrase and you'll find it everywhere it's one of those things that really should have a wikipedia entry entry of its own but but does not because it's involved it's involved in most writing especially once again i'm sorry to say especially uh, when practitioners are writing about arbitration these two phrases which we can change or use interchangeably rather uh, are all over the place i guess you've also heard them about oh and and use them <laughs> yeah you, you just did actually i think <laughs> <laughs> earlier in this episode so just to, to lead us in on this and set the stage and then allow you to, to shoot me down, why does this bother me so much? And I don't really know. It's just a knee-jerk reaction that I've, I've been working on. But I think it might be that the discussions about investment arbitration in recent years have made me a little bit uh, disappointed in the arbitration community, specifically its responses to what are, in my view, pretty often legitimate concerns about various deficiencies in arbitration. Because in those discussions, the competition among jurisdictions and institutions to be the most arbitration friendly often provokes me. Uh, It's, in my view, a pretty binary way of viewing what tends to be relatively complicated issues. Uh, Because all legal decision-making involves a balancing of interests. And I sometimes get the impression that most practitioners, uh, again, major practitioner thing rather than than something else, they tend to equate arbitration-friendly with favoring arbitral decision-making and arbitral discretion over other consideration. To me, that's that's not intellectually satisfying. It's almost like a Donald Trump kind of way of, of, of reasoning. If the result of the balancing of different interests is that arbitration wins within quotation mark, then the result is arbitration friendly. Wherever arbitration comes out the winner, that's a good thing. Right. And that's plain stupid. That's not, very not like, true, Joel. Ha, 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 gotcha. So far, so good. <laughs> but to be a little bit more concrete before we move into the more uh, normative discussions, I, I, I started jotting down a list of uh, what I think is typically... Uh, what is meant by arbitration friendly and uh, doing so I actually googled also after I did my list and then I saw that Professor George Berman at Columbia Law School actually uh, did a CARB lecture 
I don't even know what CR the Chartered for. Institute of Arbitrator is. Yeah, great. Thank you. I yeah. did know that. Uh, just a few months ago, he did a, a big lecture that that's been uh, the lecture itself has not been uh, published, but it's been reported, and it was on the topic of arbitration friendly. So uh, pretty good timing that we're doing this now, and he did a much better job job than I did. So. I was thinking I should piggyback on the expertise of a well-known scholar and arbitrator and just list a few of the things that he mentioned in his lecture or speech. So here are a few features of, of pro-arbitration or arbitration-friendly jurisdiction or arbitral rules. It promotes international arbitration's efficiency aspirations in terms of time and cost. It renders international arbitration uh, effective, and I guess here Partly, the thing is that they, it gives effect and respects arbitration agreement. Okay. It enables party autonomy and promotes flexibility, promotes arbitral tribunal discretion. It reduce, uh, reduces as reasonably as possible the intervention of national courts. It ensures the validity and enforceability of awards, and it maximizes the categories of claims that could be considered arbitrable. That's a pretty good summary. Definitely. And uh, I don't know if you mentioned it, you probably did, it was not in the report, but we, of course, have the uncentral model law in the New York Convention here as the, the gold standards for what is arbitration friendly. In order to call yourself arbitration friendly or pro-arbitration, you have to comply at least with model law in the New York Convention. And then ideally, as Lucas Mistilis mentioned, uh, you have to be something more than that. Those are like the vanilla uh, approaches, but uh, the, the best jurisdictions they go above and beyond what is required by these minimal standards right but Berman actually also engaged in a critical examination of the idea of pro-arbitration as just meaning f always favoring arbitration and there's a pretty good quote here that I think could make a good platform for discussion he said and I'm quoting among all the other things it arbitration ought to do it ought to promote arbitration's legitimacy that may entail sacrificing one or more of the other values intrinsic to arbitration, but perhaps this could be the most pro-arbitration move to make, particularly in today's climate when arbitration has been coming under attack as never before. This, I think, is a very good point, and it ties into with my uh, annoyance, I think. And Lucas Mysterious mentioned this as well, that I think a little reminder every now and then from, from domestic courts is probably healthy. But it's, I mean, a reminder that not always can arbitration go out as the victor of a, a balancing legal determination. Not every court case automatically demonstrates a restrictive attitude towards arbitration uh, just because it does not agree with the prevailing interpretation in the arbitration community. And not every such case is dangerous and threatening arbitration right. just because arbitrators' powers are reined in but do you really other. think that it's a zero-sum game do you think that the fact that arbitration is quote winning means that litigation is quote losing or could it be that in by promoting the effectiveness of arbitration you're creating its legitimacy on its own and not as a counterpoint to litigation yeah yeah of course i mean the, the, it's hard to have this discussion in the abstract i guess but, but yeah, of course, and that was, I guess, part of the Burma's point as well, that if, if you're making arbitration work, 
that's that's good in and of itself and it does not have to mean that you're shitting on on litigation right i guess but i mean there are so many sovereign interests involved uh, typically yeah, when when was... a state is legislating or a court is exercising its its sovereign powers I was reading an article and it was and the title of the article was Chile becoming an arbitration friendly jurisdiction. And it was about a Supreme Court judgment that basically observed or reinforced the fact that the court um, approves of the principle of executor, something along those lines. But basically the fact that the court deferred to arbitration and then the conclusion was Chile is becoming an arbitration friendly jurisdiction. So if I'm going to ride your wave of argument I think that would play into what you're saying, which is the fact that people use a court judgment that is basically saying we bow down to arbitration as now being an arbitration-friendly environment. Yeah, and that is also part of it that I think annoys me, and I haven't thought this through at all, so bear with me if, if you don't agree. But it, it's usually used in this context. Chile, I guess, is a good example because it's it's typically, uh, you see this, in, in a context in which a less developed or a less experienced arbitration state is sort of uh, catching up to the gold standards already established by the major arbitration states. Right. So, so by aligning themselves with the norms that have been developed in France and Switzerland and the United States, they are becoming more arbitration friendly. And that's sort of a signal to the established players in the major jurisdictions that now it's more okay to conduct arbitrations in those states. And I guess that uh, it's probably accurate, and I understand the reason for why, but it just bothers me a little bit that we've sort of uncritically accepted a bunch of, of notions as the standard, and then the rest of the world has to just play along. Right. Especially in the ISDS context, I think, because we there are so many things now that I think are becoming more and more legitimate there seems to be we talked about this when i was at vienna or in vienna at the uncentral meeting that there's a momentum now that a lot of people even insiders are accepting that for investment treaty disputes it's not always it doesn't have to be the way it's always been basically and many of the moves that are now being considered such as perhaps reintroducing some sort of exhaustion of local remedies that you have to go to court before you go to arbitration or having an appellate body that can review arbitral awards on the merits, those things, of course, are n not arbitration friendly. Those right. are not pro-arbitration pro measures. But nevertheless, most people are talking and thinking about this. And then we have this group of insiders saying, oh, but that's not pro-arbitration, as if that is an argument in and of itself. It's 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 I haven't thought this through either, but it's almost counterintuitive and you're very right. It's, you know, I was looking, for example, on the Swiss Arbitration Association and one of the, it says we're an arbitration friendly uh, environment. And one of the things was that there was no appeal on a point of law. And so there's, they basically said a disgruntled party can generally not delay the enforcement of award by initiating post award court proceedings. But then what we're doing in arbitration or what you see in these arbitral institutions is that you have a merit, uh, and, an appellate quote-unquote appellate body or another body reviewing an award afterward and so you're kind of blaming a jurisdiction in the domestic context for being not arbitration friendly because they have a review mechanism yet now we're saying it is arbitration friendly to include a review me mechanism do you yeah. see what i'm saying <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's just confusing and i guess that, that that's sort of the general point here that 
the phrase in and of itself doesn't mean anything. It's right. just it's it's like fake news. It's it's just a stamp you can put on stuff when you don't have any better arguments. <laughs> right, when you can't really like create a conclusion out of the case you just read. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's so maybe we should just urge people to be a little bit more cautious in in relying on pro-arbitration or arbitration friendly as a go-to phrase and discussions about arbitration. Yeah, I have um I did a little research on Sweden because I think Sweden is the typical go-to like arbitration friendly and a lot of practitioners in Sweden like to brag about arbitration in Sweden being arbitration friendly. Um, but then there was an article written by Matthew Saunders who works at Ashert in London and he wrote an article basically saying that Sweden is not what it claims to be as far as an arbitration center. Um, so I kind of want to let's pursue this because we won't obviously talk about Stockholm in the place of arbitration series because we talk about Stockholm all the time so we can do it here and now and then we won't have to return to it when we talk about other jurisdictions yeah I want to hear what you have to say so we'll go quickly on why Sweden is a good arbitration center or seat of arbitration because I think everyone kind of knows this but you have um, a emphasis on party autonomy that are built into the SEC rules if you have a case here Swedish courts are very knowledgeable in arbitration law because the arbitration is so prevalent. A lot of, you know, domestic arbitration is a lot more pre- prevalent than, say, other jurisdictions. Sweden is a hybrid of civil and common law. So there's case law that can be available on how courts have interpreted arbitration principles. You have the SEC portal where case law is available with English translations. If you look at English as a language, um, Sweden, you know, not only do you have practitioners that speak the language, but courts speak the language. And if you have a challenge to an arbitration, you can take that challenge in English. And I just use a horrible direct translation. <laughs> you can use you can use English in the appeal process or in the um, challenge process. So, yeah. Um, and then there's no restrictions on foreign lawyers representing clients in uh, Sweden. And then there's not very many unexpected mandatory laws that could, you know, disrupt what you would think. But let me, okay. now I'm going to walk Typical through. case for why a jurisdiction is arbitration friendly. Yes. Basically. Yeah, that's the, that's the setup. Now here comes Matthew Saunders. First of all, there's too much domestic influence from arbitration that because domestic arbitration is so prevalent in Sweden, when there is an international arbitration, the arbitrators and practitioners that are well-versed in the domestic arbitration context have that bleed into how international arbitrations are conducted. Hmm. Basically, we are not as international as we claim to be. Exactly. And we don't know how to differentiate between the two, even though there is a differentiation perhaps in the rules or something that it's not necessarily respected. I hear it in your voice and also because I know you that this resonates very well with uh, American Swedish Brian Cottick living in Stockholm. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let me let me try and mask it a little bit. (laughs) Uh, A second one, which is a bit specific, is that sitting judges or Supreme Court justices can act as arbitrators, which may create a conflict of interest when co-arbitrators are practitioners that also do litigation that could maybe later represent or represent clients in front of these judges. That's actually a good point. Many of these, uh, I don't think it's that common anymore, but many of the older cases here in Sweden, you see Swedish judges on the tribunal. But just the fact that you can appoint them doesn't mean that you have to, though. Right, definitely. Uh, yeah, and you can 
say that there's some sort of conflict of interest before they're appointed, of course. Um, and then they he got into a couple of things as far as the procedure is concerned. So, for example, um, in Swedish domestic arbitration, there is an expectation of a very significant direct examination. When we talked with Sharon Safe last season, she talked about a direct examination of hers that lasted a full day um, just on direct. Um, and then when you have a Swedish party or Swedish council entering into the international arbitration context, there's a bit of a clash that they're bringing in their domestic bad habits or domestic practices into the international arbitration context. And if you have a Swedish tribunal or a Swedish dominated tribunal, that that won't be as regulated as maybe a foreign lawyer would expect it to be. That's probably true. But um, okay, do you have more on your list or should I? I have two more things. One, bad hearing rooms. (laughs) <laughs> which I thought was very <laughs> literal. <laughs> Basically, he says that we just have very antique style hotel rooms and that's not a place to have arbitration. This seems like this is based on one guy's single... <laughs> yeah, he literally had a really bad day in <laughs> Stockholm. It was probably raining. Uh, and then the final one is that there's not that much substantive law on uh, principles of contract, for example, uh, that the Supreme Court has decided because arbitration, it's too arbitration friendly, basically that there isn't that everything is decided outside of the courts and therefore there's not enough case law that supports principles of interpretation that could be used for your argumentation in an arbitration because mm, everything that's, is that, just that's, that's an initiated comment from from an outsider and it, and it's totally true but i think that serves my general point that he's basically saying sweden is so arbitration friendly it becomes arbitration unfriendly yeah it's a full circle <laughs> Which shows that it's the, the the terms are just confusing. Yeah. So what are not your very thoughts? useful. Well, I, I think he he has a few good points. I don't know that much about hotel and, and and hearing rooms. I guess that depends on where you are. And I I know that there are a few very good hearing centers in Stockholm. So that seems like a, a minor point. But otherwise, of course, he's right. But it, in, where was this published? Why? I think it was an Ashert. Um... Like a note to yeah, like one that they do the exactly. Public. Oh, yeah, I see. Yeah, because I mean, why, why would he make this case? <laughs> Maybe makes... to dispel this arbitration friendly, um, this arbitration friendly concept. But it's funny yeah, that, that in his in his critique, exactly what you're saying is that when you become too arbitration friendly, it's actually arbitration unfriendly. But then it's the, 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 that particular argument that the, we have so many arbitrations that there's no uh, court cases on, on contract law and other commercial stuff. That really has more to do with the, with the substantive law rather than the, the procedural law at the place of arbitration. Correct. You have to make that distinction when we're talking about contractual arbitrations that, that you can have one, one law governing the substance and another governing the proceedings. So just because you're having a hearing in Stockholm and you're legally seated in Stockholm doesn't mean that Swedish is the applicable law. If you if you don't like the lack of court cases on on contractual interpretation, for example, then choose English law instead, where you have uh, just shelves of uh, court cases on contract interpretation. Right, because if it was on procedure, then you are going to have to the extent that the court does intervene, you're going to have cases not only in Swedish but in in English that you can refer to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There are many other things that are strange with Sweden, if we're sticking with Sweden now, because it seems we are, <laughs> that, that he could have mentioned 
that are like along the along the lines of the the skeletons in the closet slash cupboard. For example, in Sweden, unlike in most other jurisdictions where you have arbitrations, you can even when the arbitration is pending, you can go to court and ask the court to rule on the jurisdiction of the tribunal. So you can have parallel right both before the tribunal and before the Swedish courts. And we've had a few unfortunate investment treaty cases uh, where the tribunal was faster than the court because it was appealed in court. So the tribunal said, yes, we have jurisdiction. And then the award was final and binding and the arbitration was over. And then like a year later, the court in Sweden said, oh, actually, under Swedish law, there's no arbitration agreement. So sorry, the arbitration is null and void. <laughs> that's that's not arbitration friendly by any standard, I guess. That's been proposed to, to change now. And there's also another, it's been reversed, but I don't think people appreciate this enough. For a long time, we had a court case in Sweden saying that when there's no connection to Sweden, you cannot have the arbitration seated in Sweden. Oh, the right. Parties, the contract, and, and it was reversed like 10 years ago, so it's not an issue anymore. But for a long time, even when Sweden was very much an international forum, you needed some sort of connection, according to this case, at least. I don't think it was uh, applied in practice, but legally speaking, that was the case. You couldn't have two non-Swedish parties with no relationship to Sweden whatsoever have an arbitration in Sweden which also is not arbitration friendly by any means. And still Swedes went along the, the conference circuit uh, and just playing the uh, arbitrator in Stockholm saxophone. Well, and that's what it is really, isn't it? I mean, this is this ends up to be a capitalist marketing game that we all try to say where we are is the bring your cases here because it's going to be settled in the best way possible and it's going to be enforceable and you're going to enforce all your money overnight and everything's going to be honky dory in court. <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. what it is. And yeah, it is. But I, I, I mean, by any means, I think that's just go ahead, do that. That's fine. If we are to wrap this, uh, wrap this discussion up now, do that, but stay away from using arbitration friendly or pro arbitration as, as etiquettes in the process of explaining jurisdictions because it doesn't help. It's just confusing. Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. <laughs> Underlined. I think you made a great case. I, um, I came in way more skeptical than I'm leaving. So thank you for teasing the brain and putting that you know pain in the brain when your synapses connect. Appreciate oh, it. great. Yeah. And yeah, with that, I'm going to the EFILA tomorrow, the Supreme Guardians of the Arbitration Friendly Discourse. Uh, <laughs> I probably should be thankful that we are not airing this particular episode before I go there. You need to have you seen the movie Norma Ray? Probably not because um, oh. all my references you don't know. But she she goes on a strike and she stands up on a chair and lifts a sign that says, you know, like, we need better wages and she just holds it up in silence and goes from one side of the room to the other. And I think you should do that in the conference. Yeah, or just stop playing some sort of bingo, the arbitration-friendly bingo. <laughs> every time it's mentioned, I do something to annoy people. <laughs> right. Just like have a foghorn. Like, <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah, I'll next time I will report back from the conference and uh, tell you about how I disrupted the discussions. Sounds good. Thanks for listening. You can contact us at the arbitration station at gmail.com or tweet at us at the arb station.
And or keep sending us emails. Uh, students especially. I shouldn't say this because at this point I've, I've probably responded to 30 students about master thesis topics. But it's so much fun and I'm not teaching. So I'm just enjoying getting emails about things that we've talked on about on air or, or other things that you're thinking about and you want a sounding board because your supervisor is 94 years old and doesn't care. Definitely. And we have a new sponsor, the Swedish Arbitration Association, which will be funding our trip to Sydney. Um, so we would like to thank them for their support and we are willing and accepting of new sponsors every moment. So please do not hesitate to contact us if you'd like to see your name in lights. <laughs> we will be back next Tuesday. 